Hey guys, you're listening to episode 46 of the Finish Line Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. Today we're talking with Todd Peterson, a former NFL player who now generously gives of his time, talent, and resources to help eradicate Bible poverty. show. My name's Cody, and I'm here with my co-host and brother, Keelan. Today, we get to chat with Todd Peterson, a former 13-year NFL kicker who has since developed a strong passion for encouraging generosity and Bible translation. Todd has been on the board of numerous organizations and works to encourage synergy between givers and ministries. Before we get started, you know this podcast has grown almost exclusively by word of mouth. For those of you who've helped us get this message out there by sending a link to a friend or sharing on social media, we just wanted to give you a big thanks. It really makes an impact. If you think this or any of our conversations are thought-provoking or inspiring, take a second and share it with someone who might need to hear it. We've been blown away at how God has used some of these stories to make a radical impact in the world of generosity and missions, and you very well might be a link in that chain. All right, with that, let's get to the interview. All right, here we are with Todd Peterson. Todd, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me, guys. It's an honor. So why don't you get us started with just a little of your background, you know, where you come from and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, definitely. I was born in Washington, D.C. My dad was a career Air Force officer, and he and my mom were living there, and he was stationed at the Pentagon and between the Pentagon and Vietnam over a few-year period. And my roots are really in the state of Georgia. We lived in D.C. for a little while. We moved to California for a little while. We moved to England for a little while. We came back to the States, but then really have been in Georgia for 42-ish, 43 years, I guess, something like that. So grew up in the South, grew up in very, very, very South Georgia, 14 miles from the Florida border, a town called Valdosta. Valdosta is known by ESPN as Title Town USA. There's a sign when you enter Valdosta calling itself Winnersville, USA, because high school football there was kind of king. So being a young guy there and kind of growing up as an athlete, I ended up playing football and kind of can vouch for the fact that Valdosta for a long time was kind of a cat's meow. In recent years, maybe it's had a little bit more competition from the rival county school, but for a long time, Valdosta was a great, great place to be a high school football player. And so that's my roots. I grew up down there, left Valdosta, actually went to the Naval Academy, was fairly heavily recruited football player and recruited by a lot of schools, but just couldn't really seem to pass up the service academy idea. And West Point, Air Force, Annapolis, all three recruited me and a couple of my teammates. We ended up, three of us, me and those two other guys, all committing to Annapolis, same sport, same year, which was kind of unheard of. The New York Times picked up the story. and But after a couple of years in Annapolis, I transferred back to Georgia and just really didn't want a military career. I have immense respect for my dad. He's one of my heroes and very, very, very important person in my life. Godly man, good man. But I just didn't want to be a military officer. I wanted to go to law school. I wanted to be in business. 
So I ended up leaving Annapolis after a couple of years, transferring back to Georgia, graduating from Georgia and getting drafted and playing in the NFL for a long time. So that's a lot in a little bit of time. We can go from there. Yeah, thank you for that background. I'm really interested to hear what happened when you joined the NFL and how you navigated your career during that time. Well, that's a great segue into the Holy Spirit, obviously, was my navigator, but the person who was helping the Holy Spirit was my wife. And so I met my wife when we were at Georgia. We started dating, got engaged. We got married right after my rookie year in the NFL. And man, am I grateful to God for my wife. She's my best friend. She's my partner in the gospel. And, you know, had I not been married and even for that matter, not been married to a godly woman and had a godly wife and had a kingdom minded wife and a wife who wanted to, you know, make sure her life was moving the ball down the field as it related to the gospel's advance. I'm not sure where I'd be candidly came to faith late, kind of the tail end of high school, early college over a couple year period. And my faith shot like a rocket when I fell in love with my wife and we got married because her faith was very serious to her and she was very sincere about it. And she had much more spiritual formation than me. She had come to faith early in high school. And so the NFL was not maybe the trap for me. It could have been. It is for lots of guys. You know, you take a young guy, he thinks he's invincible. He kind of walks on water in a sense. You throw a ton of money at him. He's all of a sudden, you know, the cat's meow and the city he plays in. I had a very grounding influence in my wife. And the combination of being married and having a partner in life and having a partner in ministry and so on with the fact that, you know, my faith was becoming more and more and more important to me every year was very helpful to me. And that's really how I navigated it. And so 13 years of an NFL career, I think we very early on saw the NFL kind of be a mission field. And we were really highly compensated missionaries in a sense. So I'm a physician and physicians have kind of a interesting financial path through life, which I kind of talk about in my own story, where you're through med school, residency and everything with not much of an income. And then suddenly when you go into practice, your income jumps substantially trying to navigate that. And I'm sure that is even more pronounced for someone in your shoes. I'm interested how you kind of navigated that income jump, especially in those first couple of years in the NFL and what God kind of did in your heart through that process. That's a great question. We have a dear friend who's an author and he talks a lot about men desiring to walk humbly and men, you know, be men of humility. And he says, you can't really be a man of humility until you've been humiliated. You really understand Christ-like humility once you've been, you know, humiliated. And so our story as it relates to kind of managing the income and understanding the privilege of it and understanding the responsibility and privilege of stewardship was when I got drafted, we basically spent all the money that I got in my signing bonus and, you know, my rookie year income. And it wasn't that we were doing bad things necessarily. It was just that we were self-centered. We were self-focused. And even as believers, as young believers, we were, you know, buying cars and going on nice trips and 
I bought her a nice ring and we had a really amazing honeymoon and we ate good food and blah, blah, blah. And by the time that we had reached a place where we were ready to have a conversation about giving and actually saying to God, okay, God, you gave us this. Now we're going to actually acknowledge that and we're going to actually say you gave it to us. So what would you like us to do with it? I got cut. So literally, we kind of spent all this money, and then we decided, okay, now we're going to give, and the money dried up. There was no money to give. And so I remember looking at her and saying, you know what, I'm never going to make another penny before you know we give to God first. I'm not going to spend another penny on me, you, our family, whatever God may give us in life. We're not going to spend any money on ourselves before we give first to God in the future. And so that was a really paradigm shift in our thinking. It was a defining moment in our faith because it set us on a course that was very different than I think the course we'd have been on. Again, I don't think we would have necessarily done bad things with money, but we were going to probably spend a lot of money on ourselves. And we actually have some good friends who are really generous folks and really helpful in our personal story as kind of the whole iron sharpens iron idea and encouraging our generosity who say all the time, it's not really that they struggle with generosity toward God. They know they're generous toward God and the things of God. They struggle with generosity toward themselves. And we can be generous to God and also be generous to ourselves. And how do we work ourselves out of that, right? How do we get to a place where we're really living for the glory of God to be generous toward God, to be generous toward the things of God, generous toward his people, generous toward those that he calls us to be helpful to and serve. And so very, very different kind of course of life for us as a result of that experience. When the income really started to come, we were probably better prepared for it because we had made a decision we were going to give first. And it was kind of that whole notion of first fruits giving and kind of saying, okay, well, we kind of can establish a lifestyle But as our income increases, our lifestyle doesn't have to creep. It doesn't have to grow with our income. And that was a very helpful thing, especially early in my career. That's such a mature way for you and Susan to think through an experience like that. You said you got cut. And I think it's really easy to look at that situation and say, why me? Why did this happen to us? And instead, you said, what can we learn from this and how can we not put off generosity and the things that God wants us to step into How can we get that right before we take one more step? That's just really an encouraging message. And I'm curious on how you navigated generosity from that point forward. But before I get there, I'd love to know, as you were approaching the end of your career to the point that you could anticipate it, how were you thinking about money differently as you understood that you would have to explore different avenues of income? Yeah, well, my career is a bit of, I don't know, I guess it's enigmatic, maybe would be the way to think about it. I mean, one, I wasn't a great college player. So I got benched my junior year, and I was a transfer between Annapolis and Georgia. Get to Georgia, redshirt, kind of earn the job, get benched that first year. You know, don't really get the job back because I earned it in a sense, even though I worked hard and I kicked well and I maybe did kind of in a sense, you know, convince everybody I could do it again. I didn't get it back until the guy who had taken it from me got mono and they put in another guy to basically spell him while he was sick 
who didn't do his job. And so all of a sudden they're, you know, left with no choice, right? I mean, okay, let's go back to the dude we fired and, you know, not fired in the sense that I was, was in college. It wasn't like I really got fired, but I think it was a really beautiful picture of grace. And it helped me understand what unmerited favor is and what undeserved favor is. And God gave me back something that I loved and I wanted to do, but I probably had to go through that experience to get to a place where I really could handle what he was giving me. And so that kind of set me on this course of, okay, wait a sec, God's got a plan for my life. He clearly has given me this opportunity again. I kind of went on a tear and had this amazing senior year, which was favor. That put me in a position to be drafted, which made no sense because kickers don't get drafted, first of all. But second of all, kickers who get benched their junior year usually don't get drafted. And so the fact that I got drafted, my college head coach didn't even know I got drafted. And (laughs) so, you know, it's just this one thing after another that's establishing in me and instilling in me and forming in me a really pretty significant understanding of grace early in my Christian faith. And so I think my whole NFL career, all 13 years felt like God has a plan for my life. I mean, Psalm 32 says he's faithful to show us the best path for our life. And I think as we seek him and as we walk with him and we set our gaze on him, and then in a marriage situation as a couple, we're doing that and we're kind of saying, okay, Lord, we're going to seek your kingdom first. We're going to say, how can we leverage our lives for your glory? How can we lay our lives down for other people? How can we serve my teammates? You know, how can we be a light in our community? That just kind of played out in such a way that God gave us a long run And I think that the income kind of just became part and parcel to all that. You know, it's just what it is. You play pro sports, you make money. It's that simple. You pay your dues and you go to med school, you eventually make money as a doctor. It's just reality. And so I think we got to a place where we were reasonably comfortable with it. I think that a lot of our journey as givers has these defining moments, three or four of them. And so one was that situation my rookie year where we spent everything and we had nothing to give when we actually decided, let's start giving. Another one was when I got hurt one year, I played very well. I'd had seven or eight years where I'd played as well as kind of anybody in the league at my position and kind of was always, you know, top 10 type of thing in the league. And I got hurt. And when I got hurt, my team chose to basically settle with me medically financially. They opted to let my contract terminate in the idea that I was getting older and it probably wasn't worth investing money in me getting me healthy, cut losses, just pay me off and go a different direction. And so we were in the process of building a home and committed to that because once you start to build a home, you can't not finish building the home. And so all of a sudden I'm unemployed without a current income. And we're very involved in a ministry that has this huge strategic expansion plan. And we feel convicted to make a substantial gift. In fact, it would have been at that point in time, the largest single gift to a ministry we would have ever made. And now we don't have any income. And it was kind of that notion of Do you need income to give? The scripture says, give as you've been given to. And clearly God had given us way more than we needed. So why couldn't we give? We had no reason not to give. Yes, we were going to maybe give out of savings, net worth, however you want to think about it. But we had plenty of money to give. We could give even though we were having to build this house. And it changed the way we thought about moving from giving just out of current income to actually looking at all of our assets and saying, God, it's all yours. Do whatever you want with it. 
And then at the end of my career, similarly, having a conviction that we should keep giving like we're playing, even though we're no longer playing and having that NFL income. And so I think your question kind of points to these defining moments that prepared us along the way to get to a place where time and again, we saw it's all God's. He gave it all to us in the first place. No one's ever given to God. You give back to God what he gave you in the first place. And so whether he wanted to bless us with tremendous income post NFL or not, it was all his in the first place. We're going to steward it as well as we can. We're going to leverage our lives in every way, shape, and form we can with all our time, talent, treasure, resources, relationships, influence, you name it. Because at the end of the day, what we're supposed to be doing with our lives is giving them away. And scripture says he who seeks to save his life loses it, but he who gives it finds it. And so we want to live life. We want to live full life and abundant life and experience all that God has for us. And the best way we knew how to do that was just hold things real loosely. So tell us a little bit more about that transition out of the NFL into what came next. Did you have a period where you were just kind of stepping back and trying to see what God had next for you? Or did you already kind of have something set up in the works and where did things go from there? Great question. Isaiah 55 says God's thoughts aren't our thoughts and his ways not our ways, his thoughts higher than our thoughts, all that stuff. And we bought into a business in 2003, about four years before I retired with the thought that what we would do when I retired was we would have this business. And we didn't own it in its entirety, but we had a significant stake in it. We effectively owned half of it. And it's a manufacturing business with the creative product, you know, kind of portfolio. And so we had a design side of the business and we had manufacturing core to the business and then obviously distribution and marketing and distribution. And so we figured we would grow this business, you know, our capital kind of enabled it to scale in the first years we were involved. And we thought, you know, manufacturing business, you know, it's labor intensive, space intensive, capital intensive, et cetera. And when I get done playing this, what we're going to do, and I'm going to go operate a business and my wife and our partners, we're going to be the creative, you know, side of the thing. And, over a couple year period of owning that before I finished playing and before I retired, we read a book by Randy Alcorn, who's a dear friend called Safely Home. And that book had it as, as its context and plot story of a Chinese man and an American business guy. And it really got us thinking about China. And it got us thinking about, could we really afford to domestically manufacture or like so many other companies and people have concluded, did we need to move to China for manufacturing? And so we wrestled with that and we said, you know, to Randy, we don't know how to do this. Like, should we go to China? There are things about China that we all know are challenging. And he said, yeah, you got to go to China for all the obvious reasons, you know, it's a chance to have a gospel presence in that country. It's a chance to do business there and to do it in a way that honors God and blesses people. And so when we made that decision, all of a sudden, this business that we thought we were going to grow a certain way and could see out in front of us iteratively the orders of magnitude that would represent growth and the chapters of the life cycle of the business, all of a sudden that was kind of fading away because now we we're going to essentially outsource manufacturing and that was going to mean that we were probably not going to have all the operational responsibilities and, you know, kind of game plan that we would have had, which meant now for me that there might not be something to do because I'm not the creative one. My wife and our partners are the creative folks. And 
So for a little while, it made me wrestle with what should I do? But I think that the Lord had helped us understand during my NFL career that, you know, football was one thing that maybe he had given me a talent to apply to, but it wasn't the only thing that he had created me to do. And there were a lot of other things that I had interest in and that he had given me talent to do. So over a few month period, began to really investigate kind of, you know, what was probably the next thing for me. You know, some of it was going to be related to the business that we were, of course, owners, you know, in, but it probably wasn't going to be solely that. And I think over time, he helped me understand that what he has given me may be a unique capacity for gifting, wiring for talent, you know, for is kind of seeing resources that can be connected to opportunities and maybe providing a way for those things to kind of come together. And sometimes that's ministry, sometimes that's business. So really over the last 13 or 14 years since I retired, beyond our business and kind of my involvement there, which is fairly, fairly minimal. It's not significant. I might spend 10, 15, 20% max on our businesses. We have another company now that we started about five or six years ago that's similar, you know, business. I spent a lot of time sitting on boards, private company boards, a few ministry boards, chairing a couple of them. And really all of that is the same stuff. It's connecting resources to opportunities. It's convening people, it's being a counselor and a confidant, an advisor to CEOs, et cetera. It's raising capital, it's coaching people. And so that's really what I think God gave me a vision for as I was finishing playing. And it's been super fulfilling. I've loved it. You know, we hear so frequently that God is able to use a resource or a person or a book to influence other people's lives significantly. And Randy's Alcorn's name certainly comes up a lot in that regard. We know that his ability to speak through his writing has really had some profound impact on people from a stewardship mindset. I'd love to know more about how you and Susan decided to come up with an actual giving strategy, both in the NFL and as investors afterwards. How do you think about stewarding the money that is coming in regardless of the source? Yeah, that's been kind of an evolving thing for us. I think like probably most givers early in your generosity journey, we got a little fragmented. We got spread a little too thin probably. And maybe even had a little bit of a shotgun mentality as opposed to kind of a rifle or a laser focused mentality. And I think we're not all supposed to do everything, right? In fact, most of us are probably not supposed to do everything. Most of us are probably supposed to do a thing or two. God creates us uniquely. Ephesians 2.10, you know, we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do great work, which he prepared in advance for us. Well, the great work he prepared in advance for me might not be the great work he prepared in advance for you. And so I think early in our generosity journey and even in our faith journey, we kind of got like a little bit fragmented and spread out. And at one point in time, we're giving to 50, 60, 70 different things. And over a few year period, we realized one, we were making uh, probably for us, not great decisions financially, you know, and how we were stewarding what God was entrusting to us. Two, some of it was out of obligation and God loves a cheerful giver. And so we were at times probably not giving cheerfully, maybe even giving begrudgingly and out of obligation or feeling like we had to do it. You know, the scripture makes it really clear that God doesn't need our money. 
We don't have to give. We get to give. I love to say that. It's a privilege to give. You know, God doesn't need our money. He's got the cattle on a thousand hills. Three, we had some passions that kind of got unlocked and uncovered over time. And what we realized was instead of giving to 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 or however many things, there were probably four or five or six things God really had for us. And one of the things that we realized inherent to that was we are people who really want to be invested in all senses of the word. We don't want to simply write a check to an organization. We want to give financially, materially. We believe that is a hundred percent why God gives us more than we need is so that we can use those funds and those resources to help other people do what he's called them to do. But two, he's given us brains, he's given us energy, he's given us time, he's given us, you know, different skills and talents. And how can we come alongside those, you know, partners and help them do what they've been called to do beyond simply giving them financial fuel? And so the four or five, six things at any given point in time, and most of those things over long periods of time, there's been a lot of continuity in those relationships have been things we've been very invested in, in every sense of the word. We've served on those boards. We've hosted things to help them, you know, raise more money. We've introduced our friends to them. We've taken trips with them. We've provided safe spaces for their leaders to get away to. And that has really probably been kind of how our strategy or approach to giving got worked out over time. We believe God's word is precious. It's the most precious thing we have. And all ministry hinges on the power of the gospel and the language of a person to engage the gospel. So Bible translation is core to all of that. We really believe all ministry is sustained by and really even birthed out of scripture being available, you know, to people who you're trying to minister to. And so whether it's youth ministry or it's sports ministry or it's college ministry or it's stewardship ministry or whatever else it might be, all that stuff kind of flows out of the gospel being available to people in a language that means the most to them, you know, and then how do those ministries and those practitioners in ministry work with their constituency as it relates to the gospel making sense to them in their language. So that's a little bit of a ramble, but I mean, I think for us, one, we were fragmented and we got focused. Two, we decided to go deep, not be a mile wide, an inch deep, et cetera. And then it's Luke 12, to whom much is given, much is expected. It's not only about money. It's about our whole life, everything, our time, talent, treasure, influence, you name it. So... Yeah, that's perfect. Exactly. Everything that you just said. And I just wanted to highlight both those themes again, because we hear them over and over to the point that I'm convinced that that is really how God has designed us to enter into generosity. The first one that you said being to really focus in on one or a small number ministries or target areas of the world that need light and really stepping in heavily into those rather than the shotgun approach. We've heard that over and over, and I'm convinced that that is you know, how we're designed to give. And then the second thing you said, which I think is equally powerful, is, is that investing more than finances. And I think that financial giving is a wonderful entryway into that process, into kind of getting more involved and learning more about an area that God is already working or about organizations and, and learning more about the work that they're doing. And then through that, 
stepping into a deeper role. You mentioned Bible translation. Just as kind of an example to our listeners on what that process looks like, maybe you could go a little bit deeper into how God kind of shaped that as one of the core burdens for your heart, and then what that process looked like as far as stepping in financially and then stepping in you know, on other levels as well. Yeah, well, I was the dumb jock. That is not meant to be self-deprecating. It was true. I was not educated at all as it related to missions. And one of my teammates at the University of Georgia, who was an All-American and got drafted with me, not to the same team, but same year, he ended up getting hurt. And he was projected to play forever type of thing. And I was projected to go get a job. And so the fact that God would have him kind of have his career cut short and get hurt and end up going to seminary, become a pastor, fall in love with a gal who had a huge heart for the poor. And before you know it, they feel called to the mission field. And he would have me be the guy that ends up playing, you know, 13 years and making a bunch of money was pretty ironic for the two of us. And so he actually came to my wife and I, he brought his wife to Susan and I, and he said to us as they were being assigned to go to the mission field, would you support us? And because we had a friendship, it was a very easy answer. Of course we will. We love you guys. You're our friends. He was in my wedding. I mean, but then he kind of unpacked that and he said, you know, let me tell you exactly what we're going to go do. And let me tell you exactly what we're asking of you. And let's make sure you really understand what you're signing up for, because this isn't kids play. And we had no idea. We were so ignorant. I remember him looking at us sitting in the den of our home and saying, how many languages are on earth? He was very gracious. They were both very gracious and kind of just sat there looking at us, waiting for us to answer. And, you know, I was an academic All-American. Susan was an honor graduate. We are smart people. And I was absolutely dumbfounded. I just looked at him and I said, I don't know, a few hundred. I mean, there's a couple hundred countries in the world. There's probably a couple hundred languages, right? I mean, and he said, how about 7,000 plus? And I just thought to myself, you're crazy. Like you've gone off the deep end, buddy. And he helped us understand when you read in the scripture that every tribe, nation, people, and language will be before the throne and the lamb. That ethnos idea is not geopolitical countries. It's literally the nation. It's all the people groups out there. And when God separated the peoples of the earth, you know, at the Tower of Babel, he did a good job, right? I mean, and so he began to help us understand that and we began to support them. And we went to another NFL family and said to that couple, what they really needed was reliable transportation. And so he said, would we, you know, help them get a car? And so we went to another NFL couple we were close with who were believers who we knew had a heart for missions and said, let's buy these guys a car. And so we bought them a really good vehicle because they needed it where they were going in East Africa. And so over the years, that opened our eyes to the work of Bible translation. And what we realized was there were 7,000 plus languages on earth. And at that point in time, there were about 40, probably six, seven, 800 that had little or no access to scripture. And at that point in time, there were about 3,000 that didn't have a single verse of scripture inside that 4,000 plus number. And that wasn't okay. That doesn't make sense. I have dozens of Bibles in my home and all kinds of translations. And today, because of technology, we can scroll through version, the Bible app, whatever, and we have access to all these different, you know, commentaries and different versions of scripture. And yet there are people on earth who don't have a single verse of scripture. And 
And how in the world are they going to be before the throne and the Lamb if they've never, ever seen the Scripture, read the Scripture, heard the Scripture, Romans 10, right? And when you think about Matthew 24, the gospel will be preached everywhere, and then the end will come. How's the gospel going to be preached everywhere if the gospel hasn't even been translated for people? I mean, so I think it just was this, like, crash course on kind of like, here's what God's doing. When we read in the scripture that it says, God so loved the world, he gave his only son so that, you know, whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. He's redeeming the world. He's making a way for people to be brought back into right relationship with him. Isaiah 60 says the nations are coming to the light. Matthew 24 says the gospel is going to be preached everywhere. Habakkuk says that the glory of the Lord is going to cover the earth like the waters cover the seas. And then we get to that picture in Revelation and John says, there are going to be people from every tribe, language, tongue before the throne worshiping forever. That's what God's doing. God's redeeming mankind. He's making a way for every person on earth, regardless of where they live, regardless of their language, regardless of their culture, to have an opportunity to say yes or no. We know not all people will say yes, but he's making sure everybody has a chance to say yes. We want to be a part of that. We want to be a part of that. We want to do everything we possibly could to make sure there was not a person on earth who didn't have access to the gospel in their language. And we talk about injustice left and right in our society, in our culture, and in the church. Could there be a greater injustice than not having access to the gospel in your language? I can't imagine. I can't imagine. And so that just put us on this trajectory that was life-shaping, if not life-changing, and we became very involved in a Bible translation ministry. I went on the board. I became chairman of that ministry. It was chairman for five years, an enormous privilege. And then over the years, really realized that maybe similar to our giving story, Bible translation had been kind of fragmented. And a lot of organizations out there doing a lot of good work, but not a lot of coordination across them. Different systems, different processes, different kind of goals, objectives, and we became friends with some different donors who felt similarly, like Bible translations fragmented. Why isn't it more coordinated? Why isn't it more unified movement? Why isn't there better strategic planning around how to knock that number down to zero and how to make sure everybody has access? And so we've had the privilege of being a part of seeing a lot of those key organizations and leading translation organizations come together in an alliance. Stanford did a thing a few years ago in their social innovation, you know, institute or center that was a white paper on what's called collective impact alliance. And it's where kind of everybody comes together around shared vision and shared resources and, you know, working together with the, the idea that together they could accomplish something that none of them could accomplish alone. And, so that's really been a big part of the Bible translation story the last few years is there are now 11 agencies that are galvanized and unified around a shared vision that working together by 2033, they could er eradicate Bible poverty. And obviously, all of us in the philanthropic community get to play our part in that. And we think a lot of the times about kind of the picture that we see in scripture of Aaron and her holding up Moses' arms. Like, what is it I can do? I don't know how to translate scripture. I'm not a linguist. I don't have a PhD in linguistics. I don't have a master's degree in linguistics. I'm from South Georgia. Some people probably don't think I can speak English. 
<laughs> but what I can do is I can give and I can help people understand the privilege it is to give to see the gospel made available to all people on earth. And so we get to kind of hold up the arms of these translation leaders. And it's been amazing to see what's happened before all this. The translation world thought it would be about 2150 AD before they would enter the last language on earth. Today, as I just said, working together, they believe that by 2033, by the grace of God, we could eradicate Bible poverty, which would mean that every single language on earth had at least some portion of scripture translated. And that's crazy. And that starts to make your wheels spin, your head have smoke coming out of it when you understand what God might be doing to bring, you know, to bear what he says he's going to do. And that is going to, there was a day coming when everybody will make a choice. So, Yeah, that's pretty incredible. We've heard this a few times now that there's just been this incredible coming together of all these different organizations and individuals. You kind of have this unique perspective of applying experience as a steward, as a business person, applying a lot of that with a very involved perspective into the actual ministries that are out there doing the work. And I don't know how many people actually get to get on the inside of both sides there. And I'm curious how that shaped your perspective and maybe opportunities that you've seen for people who want to do the same, who hear about this incredible need for the gospel to be shared and all of the people and organizations that are working together to get that done. And I feel the same way that you did. I want to be part of it too. And I'm curious what opportunities that you've seen for people to get involved in some way? Yeah, well, that's a great question. I mean, I think the first thing that I always say is pray. Like as the people of God and the body of Christ, we need to be praying for the lost. We need to be praying for the unreached. We need to be praying for the place people in places that are considered closed. There are a lot of places on earth that are dark and hard. And when you think about in the missions world, the lingo, the 1040 window, that's a really, really challenging geographic area and swath of earth that has still got many unreached and unengaged peoples, you know, in it. And the gospel hasn't penetrated these places and the church is not alive and thriving and vibrant necessarily in these places. And so I think that the first thing we're supposed to be doing is pray. We're supposed to be praying for people on earth who don't know Jesus and asking God to move in power and might to make himself known in all these places. And, you know, it only takes a little bit of light to kind of bring, you know, change to the darkness. Right. And so prayer is a big deal. And I think ministries need to be founded on fervent prayer. And that needs to be central to every ministry effort. We are crazy if we think that we're going to do anything good for any length of time without praying. I think secondarily, it's a privilege to invest in these things financially, and you can only give to what you know. And I remember somebody saying that to me one time and me kind of scratching my head thinking, what in the heck are they talking about? And then over time, at 52 years old now, but for you know, 30 years of being an adult and making money, I've realized they're right. There are a lot of things I didn't know about yesterday that I know about today. And there are a lot of things I've learned over the years that have become very important to me and Susan, our family, that we didn't know about, you know, in earlier seasons of life. And so I think if you're a Christian who, you know, 
let's define what a Christian is, right? I think if you're a person who has surrendered your life to Christ and believes that you are saved by the work Jesus did on the cross, and you understand that God redeemed you and transformed you and regenerated you, and you're a new creation, and he's put you on a new pathway, and that Ephesians 2 that I talked about is true for you. He's got something he wants to accomplish and through you because of the fact that he made you a new creation. He's redeemed you. One of the things he wants you doing without a shadow of a doubt, it's not even debatable, is making sure people around you who don't know the truth are exposed to the truth and grace of the gospel. Mm-hmm. And when you look at Acts 1, you know, it talks about the idea that we have our Jerusalem, right? Like there's that place that we're kind of living. And then there are these places that are not necessarily, you know, concentric, you know, circles or kind of just these outer layers, but it gives us an idea that there are places beyond where we live that we are supposed to ensure the gospel is advancing. And one of those is the tail end of that scripture, that verse is the uttermost parts of the earth, the ends of the earth. Well, that whole notion that there are people on earth who don't have the gospel in their language, maybe there's no gospel presence. The church probably doesn't exist there. That should be burdensome to every Christian. That should be keeping us up at night. How in the world can we say, thank you, God, for saving me and be okay with the fact that we know there are millions upon millions upon millions, hundreds of millions of people, maybe billions of people on earth who don't know Jesus. We need to do something about that. And if they don't have access to the gospel in their language, how in the world can they know who he is? Think of how you and I, the three of us, know him because of the fact that we have scripture in our language and we can read it. Who would we make God to be if we couldn't read the truth? We would make up some God that is not who God is. We know that. And so I think we are always telling people pray, always inviting people to give. And then I think in certain instances and unique sets of circumstances, there are ways for people to become more involved. And, you know, whether or not it's maybe in a governance role, like somebody like me who ended up serving on a board of one of these organizations and really kind of getting my rolling up my sleeves and getting into the nitty gritty and really understanding kind of what's under the hood and how the sausage is made to steal the phrase and what translation really looks like, the nuts and bolts of it, that may be for some people. You know, interestingly enough, maybe God would even call you to become a translator. That would be crazy, but maybe he would. And, you know, I had a football player buddy who was 6'7", 320 pounds, who was drafted and was going to play in the NFL, and that wasn't really God's plan for him. That was a little piece of the plan, right? God did have him get drafted. God did have him go play in the NFL for a short period of time. But all of that was to set him up to be able to go to seminary, to be able to pay for seminary, to become a pastor, to end up having a heart for the lost and the unengaged and the unreached, and specifically those without the gospel in their language. He went to linguistic school. He actually got trained to be a linguist, and then he went and became a Bible translator. Well, maybe somebody listening is that person, right? I mean, we believe in the translation world that the last Bible translator is alive. Think about that just for a second. Yeah, The last translator is alive. If the idea that every language is going to have translation by 2033 is reality— It's a vision that's going to come to fruition by the grace of God and all this coordination and collaboration and strategic planning and resource mobilization, all of which is happening. Then that means that there's somebody on earth today, probably, 
because 2033 is 11 years from now. So maybe it would be a 10 year old, but I doubt it. It would probably be somebody who's more than 11 or 12 or 13 years old. That person's been born. That person probably understands the privilege it is to have the word in their language, or at least they want desperately for the word to be translated in their language. Maybe they don't even have it in their language yet, but maybe they're being exposed to this work and they're going to have an opportunity to translate scripture for their people. We know a lot of people who have gotten to translate their own language. Can you imagine that? That's crazy to even think of. So pray, give, ask God if he wants to use you in some sort of leadership capacity, and maybe even be open to the idea that God would send you to do the translation work. That would be pretty crazy. Yeah, it has been, I think, a great privilege for Cody and I to be able to have a lot of conversations like this recently of seeing just an incredible culmination of the church coming together around some of these goals and exactly what you're talking about. You're talking about the Illuminations collaboration, right, for the Bible translation on that side. And we've talked to people from several different organizations finishing the task and several of these kind of big picture organizations that are helping to bring all these pieces that were operating independently all into one coordinated effort and I mean, the obvious thing, you know, when I see that is that God is the one that has been leading all of this the whole time. You know, we all think that we're kind of leading our own little part or whatever, but really God is writing his own story, just like the Bible is one story with all kinds of different subplots and things, but it's all the story of Christ and God redeeming the world. And there's just such a perfect picture of that happening in the world right now. And it's such a privilege to be living in a time like now to be able to see that And exactly like you're saying, to be able to step into that and be a part of it, that is unique, I think, to the time that we're living right now compared to the last 2,000 years. So I think there's a ton of opportunity. One question I have for you kind of rolling off that is, like Cody said, you have the interesting perspective of having been on the generosity side and being a gospel patron in a sense of helping to support these kind of ministry efforts And then also working on the inside, working in the capital raising side and seeing things on that end. And I'm wondering if you've seen, especially on that second side, if you've seen ways that givers and ministries interact where there's a potential for an increased synergy in the same way that there's kind of all these different ministries doing their own thing. And now that has been more brought together in a synergistic way. Because, you know, many people listening here will have an interest in supporting and in giving and in financially stepping into this kind of work. What are the best ways we as givers can be doing that? Yeah, great question. And allow me the liberty to back up slightly because I think it'll apply to my answer here. You know, it is an exciting time to be alive. And I know many people who are older than all of us who are saying it's the most exciting time to be a Christian. And I think sometimes that's fun to say, and it's a little bit like rah-rah, and let's all be cheerleaders for the gospel and the church. And probably Christians throughout history have been able to say, it's a great time to be a Christian. God's moving. The gospel's advancing. The gospel's always advancing. We know that. The gospel's never retreating. But Acts 17 tells the three of us that God chose us for now. That's exactly what the scripture says. It says he determines the time and place a man, a woman, a person will live. He determines that. 
And so what a privilege it is for us. What a joy it is for us. What an incredible opportunity is in front of us as the church, as the body of Christ believers today to know God's actually letting us be the ones that are seeing this kind of happen. Never before in the history of the world could someone say, well, in my lifetime, I think we will have gotten the gospel translated in every language. That's crazy. That means something. That's significant. Like we can't just pass by that. And so I think understanding that, like understanding the privilege it is to be alive today, the privilege it is to be invested in the work of God today, the privilege it is to be kind of doing everything we all can do to make sure we're playing our part to see the gospel reach every tribe, nation, people, language, etc., is a really big deal. And I think to your question about where does synergy exist and where's their real good kind of hand in glove type of giving and ministry work occurring, I think it probably happens best where ministry leaders don't have a scarcity mentality. They have an abundance mentality. They're not looking at the cup and saying it's half empty. They're looking at the cup and saying it's got the water in it it needs. God's faithful. He's going to provide what we need to do the work he's called us to do. So ministry leaders aren't scarcity mentality. Ministry leaders aren't looking at givers as a checkbook or as a means to an end or as an opportunity for some sort of transaction. But then givers aren't looking at ministry leaders as less than because they don't have the money. And what I've always tried to do as a giver, but then also as a, you know, as a person who has had the privilege of being, you know, influential in some ministry spaces, primarily as a board member, is always make sure that we try to blur that line. We try to make everybody look at each other and say, we're all in this thing together. Many members, one body. Let's just each play our role. Yes, God may have given you the capacity and the means to generate income and to create financial resources. And that may be how God really wants to use you in partnership with or in conjunction with me, who God's given a different gift to or a different talent to or a different set of abilities to. And I love that the fact you use the term or phrase gospel patron, because I am a huge fan of that whole idea, that notion of the fact that God does raise up people who are proclaimers of the gospel and he raises up people who are patrons of the gospel and together they accomplish something that neither of them can accomplish alone. There are preachers of the gospel and teachers of the gospel and proclaimers of the gospel and practitioners of gospel work who absolutely were created by God to do the work that that God has given them to do, but they need someone to partner with them. They need someone. Moses needed Aaron to hold his arms up. When his arms fell, things didn't work well. But when his arms were up, things were working good. But the person in business who's making this money, they don't have the slightest idea how to translate scripture or how to enculturate in some North African place or Middle Eastern place or South Asian place and understand how to reach a culture and and a people. Or even would they be willing to do that? And so how do we partner together? How do we come together like a hand does fit in a glove and really get away from transactional giving, become more relational, more committed to each other, walk humbly with each other, understand neither of us is perfect, et cetera. And I think that's where it happens best. I mean, we want to partner with people. We don't want to be better than them. We don't think we're better than them. 
We don't want them to think that they can do it without us. The reality is none of us can do it alone. We cannot do it on our own. There's no way. And if we'll just run in our lanes and we will do our part and we will all work together, God tells us what will happen. I mean, that's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of the Christian faith is we know the ending, right? We know how it plays out. And like one of my friends says, it's rigged. The whole thing (laughs) in our favor. Yeah, we got to be obedient. And so we want to be humble. We want to be generous. We want to be honest and people of integrity, transparent, vulnerable. And we want to partner well with others. And I think where that can be thought of that way is where giving is high impact. Yeah, Todd, I heard a metaphor for that. It's like knowing the score of a game that you didn't watch and then kind of going back and watching the replay to see how it played out. And it feels like we're we're living that and we know how it ends. But it is a very, very exciting time to be in the kingdom. I'm curious for what you see coming in the future. What's ahead and what are you excited about? That's a great question. Well, I'm super excited about the idea that these organizations are working together and the gospel is advancing at a pace we've never seen before. And the translated scriptures are coming online faster than ever before. And I do believe these 11 agencies and this Illuminations Alliance working together could eradicate Bible poverty by 2033. And I can't imagine anything more exciting than that. I'm also very excited about what I believe is a really sweet thing in my kids' demographic, young Christian kids who are taking giving really seriously. I'm watching my 20-something kids give in ways that I was clueless about. I mean, my kids are giving to Bible translation. They're 24 and 22. I didn't know Bible translation existed. I had no concept for any of that. And I think the way my kids and some of their peers are thinking about stewardship, thinking about generosity, the things they're reading, the places they're going, the trips they're taking, this generation of young people, I believe, gets a bad rap. I think there are a lot of young people out there that are really, really fired up about making sure that they leverage their lives for God's glory. And I think a lot of them are super smart. I look at, you know, some of my kids, my children, of course, but then some of their friends. And these kids are setting the world on fire. They're rocket science smart. I mean, they're sharp as tacks and they are going to the best schools and they're getting out of schools and they're getting amazing jobs and they're making money and they're not doing stupid stuff with the money and they're leveraging their time, their talent, their influence, their financial resources to build the kingdom of God. They're going to good churches. They're in the word. And I think that's exciting because I think we see this other side of the world that's really scary. It just isn't very fun watching what's happening in the world some of the time. I think that I'm also really excited about how this whole collaborative idea is being applied across other sectors. I'm watching what God has done in the Bible translation space, and I'm seeing how people are trying to take some of those principles that are transferable and apply them to other sectors. And I think, you know, for me, I really value partnership. I really value, you know, maybe it was because I was a kicker. It didn't matter how good a kicker I was. It didn't matter how strong my leg was. It didn't matter how tough I was mentally if I didn't have a great snapper and a holder and an awesome protection team. If my snapper and holder didn't do their job, it didn't matter how good my leg was. If my, you know, eight guys up front didn't do their job, it didn't matter how good my snapper was. And so I think team sports helped me understand God's way is partnership. Simple as that. Anybody who's out there as a lone ranger trying to do things on their own doesn't understand the kingdom of God. God created us to work together. That's why it says many members, one body. 
And so the more we're seeing partnership, the more we're seeing people work together, the more coordinated approaches are, the better planning is across different teams and you know, so on, I think the more effective we are as a body of Christ. I mean, and I'm excited about that because I think the enemy loves division. The enemy loves discord and chaos and disunification and fragmentation. But John 17 makes it clear what God thinks of as it relates to unity. It's a very, very simple passage in there where it talks about the fact that the world would know we are one. What will happen if the enemy has to fight the body of Christ as one? That's formidable right there. If we're united and unified and we are all sold out to the one thing, and that is that Jesus is made much of, the enemy's in trouble. And I think that's exciting because we don't fight flesh and blood. Too often he deceives us into thinking that our battle is against flesh and blood, but it is not. It's against him. It's against the principality of darkness and the spiritual forces of wickedness. And so if we can rise above the fray and keep our focus on Jesus and lift him up, he says he draws men to himself. You know, I think humility is really kind of a core competency of the Christian faith. I think it was John the Baptist that said, may I become less so that he becomes more. And the more that each of us individually takes that mindset, I think the more that the exact things that you're talking about begin to happen in the ministry space, the more each of us as a ministry begins to say, may I become less so that Christ can become more, the less any of the lines matter at all. And in the givers and the ministry collaboration, the more we as givers say, may I become less, may my name not mean a thing so that Jesus's name might mean everything, then the more we're willing to set down anything else aside so that God's kingdom can be brought here on earth and Jesus's name can be said by every man, woman, child on the planet. And I think that we are seeing that happen in all these different spaces at an accelerating pace. And so I'm excited to see what happens in every conversation we get to have like this, where we just get another angle or piece of that picture is just like getting to see another piece of God and what he probably sees all the time from his global perspective. And so, yeah, it's just a privilege. I did want to leave a minute for our manager's minute here. You know, as we seek to manage God's wealth wisely, we like to end every episode with one practical action our listeners can take to do just that. So Todd, do you have a quick suggestion for how people can be using any financial margin they have to serve their communities, advance the gospel? and build God's kingdom? Yeah, I've been thinking a little bit about that. I am a big believer in our giving being a journey. And I think about my own story and just like I talked about those defining moments, which were really formative for Susan and I in better understanding how God wants us to look at money and better understanding how he wants us to steward what he has entrusted to us. And the whole notion that to whom much is given, much is expected. And I think that the practical thing I would say, and it's what I've been trying to get my kids to understand, and I'm so excited about the journey they're on, is every giver ought to take a step in the direction of really trusting God with everything. And it doesn't matter if you've been given for a long time or if you haven't really given and you're just exposed to this and you're like, what in the heck are these guys talking about? I would say, like Acts 20 says, it is more blessed to give than receive. Just start. Just take a step. If you're not a giver, try. 
Just trust God. Just make a gift and see what happens. If you're a kind of person who's dibbled and dabbled a little bit, guess what? Start tithing. Just take a step. See what happens. If you're a person who's been tithing for a while and you think that there maybe is something more out there, trust God with more than 10%. See what happens. And if you're a person who has way more than you need, think outside the current income realm. Trust him with all of it. I think the best decision Susan and I ever made was to offer back to God everything we have in our, to trust him with everything and let him do what he wants with it and use us as managers, as stewards, because it's not ours in the first place. He can take it all away. He gave it. He can take it anytime. And I think when we've approached life that way, it's been very, very, very transformational. We're always trying to take a step toward the idea that we have more to give. There's something we can give more generously than we're giving it already. That's a really, really, really practical thing. But I think it's a big thing. I think God wants us to trust him with everything. And so if you're not giving, you got to start giving if you're going to trust him with everything. And if you are kind of playing around with him, trust him with 10%, right? Like, see what happens. You can't outgive him. That's impossible, guaranteed. You'll never regret it. And I also think that the Lord is faithful to provide for us and he meets our needs. The scripture says he will supply all our needs according to his glorious riches in Christ, his glorious resources in Christ. And Philippians 4 is where that is. And here's what I realized about that a few years ago. If God's faithful and promises to meet our needs, it means that we have a need. If I'm a person who he's entrusted resources to that are beyond my need, I have more than I need, then I got to give in such a way that I actually create need. I got to really, really, really be willing to give generously. Otherwise, I'm never going to have any need. And I want God to meet my needs because that's what it says in Philippians 4 he'll do. And we have seen him do that. We've seen him numerous times do something in our life that was so personal and like almost down to the scent, meet our need because we had been generous. We had been willing to trust him with something that maybe didn't even make sense. I can remember one instance, for example, where we felt like God said to make three gifts and they were substantial gifts that we hadn't planned on making. And we entered this season where it just was one thing after another, after another. And we thought that's really interesting. Like, We didn't plan for this this year. We didn't plan for it in such a way that we've got the resources all right at our fingertips, even though we, you know, could make it happen. Ultimately, we had to do some things and we had to actually sell a couple things and we had to say no to ourselves as it related to a couple things. And literally, as we were making the third gift, and this all happened in about a three and a half week period, as we were making the third gift, literally filling out the card to make the gift. I got a text from a friend who we had invested with in a deal who said, good news. We just closed a deal and I'm going to be sending you X dollars. And the dollars that he was going to send to us that he did send to us that we actually got were about 2% more than what we had given in the three gifts. Wow. It was all coming. So God will meet your needs. He's faithful to do that if you'll trust him with all of it. Amen to that. 
Well, Todd, this has been such a fantastic conversation. It's so fun to hear all the different phases of life that God has brought you through and what he has taught you and Susan through all of that. We're so grateful that you could join us and share even just a piece of what you've learned along the way. And I'm excited to see what he might do through you and Susan and all the different pieces that God has you guys involved with now. He is certainly doing some very exciting stuff. So thanks for joining us on the show. Well, it's my huge joy and honor, and I'm in y'all's corner. I told Cody that if there's anything I can do to help y'all, please let me know and just really want to do anything I can to serve you guys. Thanks so much for listening to the show, guys. If you have questions about setting a financial finish line, the finish line movement, or anything else you heard on the show today, we'd love to hear from you. And now a quick question for you. Do you know anyone who's living a life filled with generosity, purpose, and mission? If so, we'd love to talk to them. They don't need to have a financial finish line, and they don't have to have all the answers. Just a heart to steward God's wealth to the best of their ability. If you know someone like that, we'd be honored if you could connect us. You can reach us on Instagram at finishlinepledge, through our website at finishlinepledge.com, or by email at hello at finishlinepledge.com. And finally, if you want to find any of our references or links from today's show, you can always find them in our show notes at finishlinepledge.com slash episode 46. That's it for today. We'll see you next time.